This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. We were measuring HIV in people's blood at this place called uh, Specialty Laboratories in Santa Monica. I was just an, a, a consultant there. And I came in about three days a month, and we were working on that. And at some point, we needed to re-up our, our grant from the NIH to work on that. And I had to write it. And so the first line of that was, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. And I wrote that, and then I said, well, I need a paper, some kind of scientific paper, to reference that statement, because when you make a, scientist, a statement like that, that's like a fact. You need to say, here's how come I know that. Right? You put a little one, if it's the first statement you've made, and then you put down at the bottom of the paper, you have a one, and you say, here's a paper by somebody that describes why that statement is true. Right? And so I said, to, I said, well, what's that? I don't know, let me think about it. What is that paper? Who do I go to for that? And I looked around, I asked a couple of virologists at that company, and they said, no, you don't have to reference I said I have to reference that because I don't know I don't know where that came from how do I know that and it turned out that nobody knew it there wasn't a scientific reference like a, a paper that somebody had submitted with like experimental data in it and like logical discussion and said here's how come we know that HIV is the probable cause of AIDS there was nothing out there like that nothing that is the voice of uh, Carrie Mullis. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. David Raznik, who joined me just under a year ago and is joining me again. So good to have you back, Prof. Well, let me correct that. I'm not a professor, thank goodness. I don't have that. I have a PhD in chemistry, but thank God I was never a professor in academic. Or I, first of all, I would be fired probably. <laughs> Kerry uh, hmm. uh, is a good friend of mine. He did not invent the PCR test. He invented PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and other people decided to use his invention, his technology, Ooh, to yes. try to, and turn it into okay. a test, which he really had very, very strong objections to. And I agree with him. Oh, he, he was a brilliant, a genius, and he was a very decent human being, too. And he was as funny as he could be and down to earth. Anybody could approach him and talk to him and communicate with him, which was wonderful. You know, uh, it's much and, and you get a sense. I don't care if you're a professional or just a regular person who's not a scientist. You'd be around Carrie and other people like that. You're not blown away by all of their jargon and their uh, loftiness and stuff like that. They're just real people that are approachable. They know a lot. That's true. But but uh, he res he respected everybody. He used plain, straightforward language, you know. Now try to try to get stuff like that mm. uh, from from uh, many of the people in authority these days—a professor, or Anthony Fauci, or or any authoritarian. They they just don't have that human contact with people. In reference uh, to what Kerry was talking about, also, why is it controversial? Okay. Uh, all you have to do is, I wrote an article called The Tyranny of Dogma. Yes. And it explains a lot about this. Things are controversial. There's two ways things can be controversial. One is if it's an open, healthy democracy in, in society where you get uh, arguments going and people mm. on various sides can at least have a voice, all right? And they may not agree. 
on things. That's, that's one sort of controversy there. Uh, and I saw that when science was still healthy back in the 70s and up till the mid 80s, you know, you, you could have these wonderful uh, impassioned arguments and debates, but you didn't hate each other. You know, at the end of, at the end of a conference or a talk or something, you go out and have a beer together. So it, 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 there was no animosity there. But they could be controversial in the sense that uh, you're challenging a, a, a theory or something uh, that been around for a hundred years, and finally you're 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 disputing it. You're advocating something else. That's obviously controversial. But you can talk about it and you can yeah. argue it. Then there's the current controversy that started certainly in the, in the mid 1980s. You can give a date to it, uh, April 23rd, 1984. And since then, you, science died. It died in the 1980s, and that free and open discourse and debate was killed in academic in the academic world and in the professional scientific world. And now we have dogma, and that's where the authorities or the people high up decide what is true what cannot be debated, uh, discussed, argued against. And if you bring up arguments that go against that dogma, then it, that's the controversy. The difference here is like the current com controversy is like one hand clapping. Mm. You only get one side, the authoritarian side in the media and from Anthony Fauci and people like that. That's the difference. Controversy is not a problem. It's a healthy thing. It's when you have controversy and you're trying to kill off all the the voices that want to challenge dogma and, and for a healthy world, a society, science, any institution, you need free discourse and debate and, and, and discussion. You don't have to be right. It's not important that mm -hmm. you're right or wrong. No, it's important that you're sincere and you argue fairly, yeah. you know, and then you work out over time. That That's, that's what we're missing now since not since the mid 1980s. Uh, I mean, isn't science actually about being wrong? <laughs> We're almost always wrong. Yeah. I, I tell people, uh, you, you know, a lot of people confuse science with engineers and technologists. They think we're pretty much the same, you know. We had all those famous scientists working on the atomic bomb during World War II. Uh, more than 90% of those people would not have worked on the atomic bomb, the scientists I'm talking about. It was primarily an engineering pro project at that point. You can tell the difference between scientists and, and engineers. When an engineer fails, the planes don't fly, or the bridge collapses, or the radios don't work. I mean, it's easy. You don't have to be an expert. It's very difficult to uh, know when a scientist is right, a scientific theory is right. Even for us scientists ourselves, it's very difficult to know. Sometimes it takes years, decades, mm -hmm. centuries, or millennia to ask these scientific questions before we ever sort of uh, uh, zero in on a, an acceptable explanation for something, and, and then and then you're not absolutely certain that it's going to hold up. Science, the, the scientific results or conclusions are always provisional. They're always subject to change, and they always change. Engineers solve problems. Scientists ask questions. Mm. The best scientists ask the best questions, and our answers are almost always wrong. And, which is and that's even been documented which is the exact opposite to say religion which is what Kerry Mullis was, was saying in that same interview um that you know science has become very sort of religious you know the yeah. you know, the the priests the priests are now telling us what is true and what is not true that's right i call it dogma it's the same yeah. thing dogma yeah. is is something that cannot be challenged 
You cannot ask questions about it. Nobody speaks up. If you speak up in opposition to the dogma, you are a heretic. Let's be heretics. I, I, I left Abbott Laboratories in September 1980. That were in North Chicago, Illinois. Um, I was one of uh, two brand new PhD chemists who were hired to set up the diagnostics uh, group and the, uh, the, the chemistry uh, group in the diagnostics division there. And uh, so I had two full years there and I, I learned a lot about the corporate inside business. Uh, and I had I got fed up a little bit with these large, large uh, companies and also uh, got tired of the cold <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> And I had an opportunity to set up uh, my own, my first little company in San Francisco Bay Area in September of 1980. And I took it. I left Abbott, uh, went across country to the San Francisco Bay Area, set up my company, Enzyme Systems Products, and, and spun it off into, um, uh, what was it, a Prototech. I've had so many companies over the years. Prototech uh, for an arthritis drug that, that we developed. And uh, so there it was, uh, set in the fall, uh, of 1980 in the San Francisco Bay Area, and once a month, uh, we uh, uh, there were academics, uh, academic scientists, corporate people like me, uh, and uh, physicians and scientists. We get together once a month at the University of California at San Francisco for a seminar. One of us would give a seminar, and then after that, we'd go out to a Chinese restaurant, and that's why we really got together <laughs> and we socialized. And we, the thing is, is that we get to know each other, share stories, learn about what other people are doing, what's going on. Mm. That's when uh, I guess most or all of us started hearing about this odd thing that was happening to gay men primarily. Didn't even have a name at, 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 in the early days. Didn't even have a name. It later became, uh, because it was primarily in gay men, all the way through the 90s, it was almost exclusively in gay men. Uh, and AIDS was nine out of eight, nine out of ten AIDS cases th through the nineties were still male. You know, most of them the gay guys, IV drug users. And uh, so then they they first called it uh, get grid gay related immune deficiency. Uh, that wasn't uh, politically acceptable at the time, <laughs> so they changed it uh, and they called it AIDS acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And, and that neutral neutral designation then sort of opened it up to everybody. It wasn't just restricted to gay men, even though gay men were primarily the ones that uh, that got it. So uh, we would all talk about that, you know, once a month of these things for four years. And uh, we all wanted to work on it one way or another because I distinctively remember thinking of it as my Andromeda strain, that science fiction book and movie, The Andromeda Strain, this thing that came out from outer space and it was an infectious agent and it could kill you. And uh, so here was this, this AIDS thing. It was only going after gay men, causing these weird diseases that almost none of us chemists and scientists ever heard of before, and know not a lot about them now, but like Kaposi sarcoma, mm -hmm. pneumocystis crania, pneumonia, cytomegalovirus, all these other sorts of things, you know. And they were only happening to these gay men. So we wanted to work on it and, and, and cure it, yeah. and win awards and get carried on people's shoulders and stuff like that. I was in my 30s in hotshot scientists like all the other people were just about. <laughs> and then uh, April 23rd, 1984, uh, 84 was an election year and Ronald Reagan, it was his first um, term in office. It was almost finished and they didn't want AIDS to become a campaign issue. They were afraid the Democrats would turn it into a campaign issue because Reagan had not said a word 
about uh, AIDS, his first term in office. Uh, so then they, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services rapidly, uh, hastily put together a press conference on April 23rd, 1984. And at that press conference, this is what uh, uh, U.S. policy became at that press conference. AIDS was contagious, sexually transmitted, caused by uh, ultimately a retrovirus that Robert Gallo was going to talk about, started in Africa, and was 100% fatal. That is still U.S. government policy to this day. <laughs> sexually transmitted, uh, 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 caused by a retrovirus, uh, uh, and all the rest of it. And the other thing was, at, at, at that, Margaret Heckler was the Secretary of Health and Human Services, promised that there would be a vaccine in two years. Where have we heard that before? Right? We've been waiting 37 years and there's still no vaccine uh, uh, for, for, for HIV. And all of those things are, are dogma. You cannot mm. challenge any one of those things. And if you do, if you're like Peter Duesberg, the world's authority on retroviruses, which HIV is, when he started criticizing it in public in an invited article in 1987 in Cancer mm. Research, he, he was like a legal document, point for point for point, how retroviruses in general, HIV in particular, could not cause any disease. And nobody challenged it in the scientific literature. Nobody wrote a letter to the editor or published another paper saying, Peter, wait a minute, hold up, you're wrong, or something like that. No, it never happened. And I can tell you, in science, that's a tacit admission that you're almost certainly right because we don't have an alternative for it. Mm. Unfortunately, the government was really, really concerned about it because it became dogma, remember, mm. in, in 1984. So there was a letter passed around all over the government, went all the way up to the White House, uh, concerned about this Duesberg fellow and this story, and he lost all his funding. And he, had, he was one of the youngest members, maybe even the youngest elected to the National Academy of Sciences. He would have won the Nobel Prize had he not spoken out on HIV. He was really, really close heading for that. Since since that paper came out, he's never had another grant proposal. He's, he's 84 years now, you know, and he, he's even been rejected in certain mainstream journals. Literature won't publish any articles from him. He's been hum, humiliated, vilified, unfunded, everything you can do. And, and that's to one of the world's leading scientists of the 20th century, you know. Uh, so uh, then when I started, questioning this stuff in 1985, this before I knew, even knew who Peter Duesberg was or anything, mm. I was, it was very clear to me that AIDS was not contagious. Here we were, had five years of AIDS, and it was still limited to gay men in certain uh, blocks of San Francisco. And I tried to point out to uh, my colleagues, the ones that we met once a month where we could talk about anything, you know, and I was pointing out that HIV is very smart. It knows whether you're gay or straight, rich or poor, white or black, or what zip code you live in, you know, and nobody would talk to me. Never happened to me ever in my life. You get around a bunch of scientists. As you can see, I, I like to really let it come out. You know, I just can't shut me up. That's the way most scientists are, at least historically. You know, we like to talk about what we know. It's interesting. We like to share it. And these guys would not talk to me. I lost friends, I lost collaborations, and the, the, the best collaboration I had going was, was with a parasitologist, the most fruitful, let me put it that way, was with a parasitologist. And in order to keep our collaboration going, we mutually agreed not to talk about AIDS. Isn't that's, that weird? That's very weird. 
And I was as mainstream a scientist as you could be in those days, but that was like my red pill. Something's really wrong when scientists can't talk about something. So I spent the, ne the next 37 years of my life trying to understand what's going on. And th that's why I met with Peter Duisberg, joined up with him in 96. We worked on AIDS a lot, published a lot of papers, started working on cancer, published a lot there. And uh, I, I became collaborators or colleagues with scientists and physicians and journalists around the world who were also asking these questions. You know, we even had an organization which still exists, Rethinking AIDS. Uh, yeah, I know. I've been to the okay. website. Right. You know, and mm. uh, and in those days, the 80s and the 90s and, and, the, and the most of the 2000s, you know, the early 2000s, uh, it sort of disappeared off the radar. Uh, it, 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 there was a, this, unless you lived in Africa, people are trying to drum up an AIDS scare there. Or if you're gay men, of course, there's all this focus, all their ads and everything about take your antiretroviral drugs, prevent HIV infection, all these other sorts of stuff. But it was very, very contained with these small groups of people. And they were really sort of bought into it. And it was just their way of life at that point. The rest of the world totally ignored it, it was not an issue. But during that period, what, by the way, Anthony Fauci, who is one of the, the, the chief instigators and criminals that we are dealing with today, actually started in November of 1984 at the NIAID, became the director of it and is still there. And uh, he uh, basically built the infrastructure during the 80s and 90s, the 80s and 90s of, of AIDS. He built that infrastructure, which is behind the control of the world right now. Certainly, virtually all of the institutions in, in, in government in the United States. Uh, I mean, really, all of them. And, and I didn't know that until this COVID stuff. I knew he had the health stuff covered, you know, control, grants and stuff like that and the health stuff. But Lord, he was involved in with, with the, the Defense Department and with all co corporations and all sorts of things. Uh, uh, you know, that, that we didn't know about. I didn't know about until the COVID stuff, and now it's being exposed, it's coming out there. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to have an extraordinary book. I'm helping him edit it a little bit right now. Can't talk about it, obviously, but it's supposed to now come out in November. And it is such a revelation. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever read in my life. I have a PhD in chemistry and degrees in chemistry and biology uh, from Georgia Tech. And I worked in the pharmaceutical biotech world for almost two decades. Most of it was my own companies. Uh, I worked at, uh, as I mentioned, Abbott Laboratories there in the, in the late 70s and, uh, and some others. And so I know a lot about uh, clinical diagnostics, pharmaceutical, drug development, uh, that sort of thing. I have a lot of experience in that. I've worked on arthritis, emphysema, parasites, cancer, and AIDS. And I've published on all of those things except the emphysema. I didn't publish on emphysema. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, I guess that's good enough unless you want to know more. But that, that's, that's what I did professionally. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I did, uh, I've been an, uh, outspoken against HIV hypothesis since 1985. And, uh, and even more so over the years, I was the first president of Rethinking AIDS. We had been going around a long time. Uh, David Crow, the great president of Rethinking AIDS, died last year. Uh, he, he was a great guy. Uh, Tom DeFerdinando is the new president. He's, a, he's an excellent, excellent president 
from this group. And, um, and we're now putting obviously most of, almost all of our energy and efforts and understanding uh, on this COVID mm. scam, which it is. I, I don't want to, I don't pull any punches. No, um, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. And uh, so I, I've, I was, uh, back in 2000, I, I was one of the advisors to President Thabo Mbeki of South Africa mm. and his AIDS advisory panel there. I've written about that in that article. I've talked about it in that article, Tyranny of Dogma, which is on my website. And that's getting a lot of play now. Yes. Uh, I was asked uh, in Italy back in, oh, I guess it was around 2010 or so like that. I forget what it was. There was a, a annual or biannual conference, Democracy and Science and Science and Democracy had two two approaches to it, and it was a great one in, in uh, uh, southern uh, Italy. And uh, I was invited once to speak about the AIDS stuff, like we're talking about right now. Mm. And there was a fellow uh, there who was an editor, sadly I don't remember his name, uh, of a periodical. And he asked me, he, he'd never heard about this story before. So he asked me to write an article uh, about AIDS that turned that wound up being the tyranny of dogma. And uh, it was published in a quarterly. And of course, it didn't get very far. It was a fairly academic journal. Mm. Almost nobody had heard about it and stuff. But now because of the COVID, it's starting to get picked up. People are reading that article and they say, oh, my God, this is just like what we're going through right now with COVID. And, and yeah, so that 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 little article, I'm glad I wrote it, you know, because that's historically it sets the stage and helps people right. when they want to know what was behind where we're at right now. I sort of pointed that that article on the front of my website uh, for anybody who wants to get to it. Mm, and I've been doing this stuff, God, for decades. In, in 1984, after the press conference, and we knew it was a retrovirus, Robert Gallo's retrovirus. I had a lot of virology colleagues at U University of California, San Francisco, and I, I'm a chemist, and, and mm. I knew that viruses typically have one of their genes is for an enzyme called protease, and they're different, different kinds, yeah. you know. And I asked these guys, I, I figured, aha, now I know I'll make a target. I was, you know, tissue-destroying diseases have these proteases. I'd make inhibitors for them to try to stop the tissue destruction. I thought, and uh, and these viruses have these. In these proteases and other other enzymes that they absolutely have to have to replicate. So I said, "Oh, I'll nip it in the bud, make an inhibitor uh, for this this virus." And, and I asked them what kind of protease it was, and they said it's an aspartyl protease. Lots well, like saying it's either a Mitsubishi, a BMW, or uh, or something like that. Yeah, a general category. Uh, what kind? Of, but once you know what category it is. Then you know what the, the jaws of that enzyme look like, and you can start designing inhibitors for it. Mm. And I started doing that back in uh, uh, 1984. I never made any because I realized that friends still, you know, back at Abbott that had a whole team of chemists that had already been making that type of inhibitor for at least a couple of years, and I guess that they probably already had 2,000 of them in the bottle. By by the the nineties, and I found out later, mm. early in the early nineties, when I finally met one of those guys at Abbott, they already had three thousand of them in nineteen eighty four, and uh, for for human uh, aspartyl protease, and uh, so. But I I stopped making them because I couldn't compete with my colleagues at Abbott, but I, I still accepted it in nineteen eighty four, but in 1985 is that you know where's the contagiousness? Where's the spread? 
You know, it's in the same people it was in the early 80s. And I learned later that the CDC had understood as early as 1982 what AIDS really was and is uh, in, in the industrialized world. It's a, it's a consequences of chronic drug use. And in gay guys, one of the, one of the gay drugs was these amyl butyl nitrite inhalants. They call them poppers. They would inhale, inhale these things, sometimes 15 milliliters of the pop. I would not open a bottle of that stuff outside of a fume hood in a laboratory. No, they're, they're very, very chemically reactive, intoxicated, carcinogenic. And these guys were inhaling this stuff all the time. And that was what was calling the, causing the Kaposi sarcoma, these purplish splotches on their face, you know, and their hands and things. And, and this virus, you know, was still doing that, but not to the IV drug users, not to the hemophiliacs, not to, not to anybody else, only the gay men, remember? And that's when I, I decided I wanted to talk about these anomalies with the uh, with my colleagues, you know, about how this this virus with three genes, <laughs> you know, knew whether or not you were gay, you know, or or uh, an IV drug user, or a hemophiliac, or a woman, or something like that, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and then that's when it, that's when everything crashed, and then. Uh, but that's when I realized something's really wrong. Okay, but David, how do you then respond to the original claims that uh, they had isolated this? This this is a long, long story, but I'm going to try to keep it really, really short. Uh, back in the those early days, remember I was mainstream as you could get. Mm. I I accepted that they had this virus and everything, mm. and I just like in '85 and '86, I just decided that it's cl- that clearly if there is a virus, they got the wrong one. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't doubt the existence of HIV or or anything, but it just wasn't, I didn't know what it was, but it just did not feel like it was an infectious disease. So how could it be an infectious agent, you know, causing it? And, and that was a problem. It was only, you know, years later or decades actually, but uh, then I realized uh, that you know, I learned more, especially when I joined up with Peter Duesberg, the guy who Map the, was the first one to map the genome of retroviruses uh, back in the 70s, you know, and he published that article that, that retroviruses are totally harmless and, and things like that. And, and then I looked into Robert Gallo's work, eventually went to his original papers and everything, and then there was no evidence at all that he'd ever, ever isolated a virus from any human sample at all. The, the thing, one thing that I'm satisfied with now, after, like I say, 37 years, because I've actually worked with it uh, in, in the laboratory and everything. You can buy or get, uh, if you're a scientist, you get it free from uh, NIH, uh, HIV in a bottle. And uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> and, and and you can culture it in the laboratory. And I even met some guys at University of, of Massachusetts that uh, had it, were culturing it uh, uh, up there above the electron microscopy lab. And you could get it. You grow these things. What? And this, and it turns, and it turns out this was the same, the same virus that it came from Robert Gallo's lab, his original virus that he cultured in the laboratory. The problem is, is that it, it I'm convinced it was a laboratory artifact. You can create viruses in cell culture that aren't there, and and you do it. It, he used cancer cells, for example. He could he could not grow or culture this. Uh, he stole the virus, you know, in quotes, from Luc Montagnier, and he couldn't culture it in normal T cells. 
remember the HIV is supposed to infect T cells. Your helper T cells destroy your immune system, but they couldn't grow it in T cells. That should be that should tell you something. They had they had to use a lot of little tricks, use cancer cell lines and special cell lines, which are which are not normal cells at all. Then he puts them in there and puts all of these other chemicals that make them go nuts. It really stresses these cells. And when you do that, you can generate these viral-like particles that even have nucleic acids in them and things. This is well known. It's not that it's it's not a mystery here. And these little things that are called HIV that you can culture and everything came from Robert Gallo's lab. The only HIV, and I got this from a guy who's been culturing HIV for about a decade or so, who was a consultant for my electron microscopy company. And he said that the only HIV that is available is Robert Gallo's lab. It comes by three different names, even though uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories has cataloged as of uh, uh, 2018, 812,000 different sequences of HIV, <laughs> but only one one HIV is used in any of the laboratories in the world. When I mean HIV, I mean the real particle that you can culture and replicate it in the lab. It's it's Robert Gallo's HIV that the NIH has, and uh, other people can culture it, and all the other HIVs. And the, and, and the important thing is, the only place that exists is in the laboratory. Nobody has ever observed this in a human being, yes. never to this day. But then what is it that was found basically in patient zero? Uh, nothing. That's the whole point. He, he, it wasn't Luc Montagnier's virus that we have. We, You see, he, he got this stuff, Robert Gallo got this stuff, this sample, and didn't tell Luc Montagnier that he had any success with it. But his success was from his artificial manipulation in these cell lines that Luc Montagnier didn't have. People wanted to keep the identity of a retrovirus that causes AIDS. They did not want to remember dogma. Dogma is got a ret it's already now a retrovirus causes AIDS. All right. So they couldn't challenge Luc Montagnier. They couldn't say, well, he didn't discover anything. They couldn't challenge Robert Gallo. They couldn't challenge anything like that. So uh, they were quite willing, the people like Anthony Fauci were quite willing to have Robert Gallo be, be guilty of theft of something that doesn't exist, but is dogma to exist, you know, rather than to say, wait a minute, the, 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 the whole game, the whole game is rotten. So it, it's all right. It's all right to keep that scenario going. i tell you what happened was uh, over the years, they've had, I think, four different definitions of AIDS in the United States. At the very beginning, they, they were just looking at the diseases in these gay guys that started in the 70s from these drug-using, popper-using gay guys. And it spread into the 80s and got to be a real calamity uh, uh, in certain places in Europe, uh, the East Coast of, of the United States, Northeast Coast, California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, places like that. And they had all these drug diseases that were, that were common to these guys. And then those diseases that normally have nothing in common, you know, because they came, uh, they, they showed up in this class of people, uh, that th these gay men, that they called them AIDS-defining diseases. This was before they had HIV, you see. <laughs> HIV, uh, AIDS, AIDS originally, were these gay guys, you know, they had a, a depressed immune system. 
they would come down with the, the uh, Kaposi sarcoma, which they thought was a cancer, but it's not. Uh, they had uh, these pneumonias and other problems uh, that they associated with the depressed immune system, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or gay-related immune deficiency. You say, but we so can't say then, that. <laughs> yeah, so then, so okay, so they got these the spectrum of symptoms, the spectrum of symptoms. All right, and those those spectrum of symptoms in in this in this class of people that were called AIDS. Those symptoms became characteristic of AIDS before they had a cause, all right? And then as the years went by, they keep adding new things to it. For example, other people don't have Kaposi sarcoma. If you're not taking the poppers, you don't get Kaposi sarcoma. But you're a hemophiliac and you have problems, so they come down with some, they give you an, another thing. They had a, almost 30 different AIDS-defining diseases now. And in 1993, the uh, CDC added uh, TB, tuberculosis to the AIDS-defining diseases, and they also added cervical cancer. Now, women obstinately refused to get AIDS, then as now, and, and even when they added cervical cancer as an AIDS-defining disease, guaranteed to only be women, you know, but even so, women still obstinately refused to get AIDS, you know, they just, because they didn't have all these drug problems that these gay guys that the CDC had worked out as early as 1982. And, uh, and they also added in 1983 one non-disease, just a pure laboratory uh, test. You had that two tests. You mm -hmm. had to be antibody positive for HIV. You can't, if you have any of those diseases and you're, and you're antibody negative, then you have just Kaposi sarcoma or pneumocystis cranii pneumonia yeah, or cl okay. uh, cryptosporidium. But if you're HIV positive, aha, now it's AIDS. And they don't treat you for those things, they treat you with these deadly drugs for AIDS. That sounds like and COVID. If you're a woman, if you're HIV positive woman and you have cervical cancer, guess what they treat you for? AIDS. Because that, that was AIDS defining as of uh, 1983. And also since 1983, one laboratory test added to it. If you have fewer than 200 CD4 T cells, white blood cells per microliter of blood, mm. and you have antibodies to HIV, you're a full blown AIDS case. And since 1997, the overwhelming majority of all AIDS cases in the United States came under that one definition, antibodies to HIV and fewer than 200 CD4 cells per microliter of blood and no other symptoms, no symptoms at all. And the CDC had to hide the fact that the vast majority of new AIDS cases since 1997 have no symptoms of disease. <laughs> they just come under these laboratory tests. So what they, they quit doing in 1997, they used to keep a list of all the AIDS-defining diseases, you know, the tally of them for all the people that, that had these AIDS-defining diseases. 1997, they quit doing that. You cannot find a list of AIDS-defining diseases since 1997. Because if they did, <laughs> guess what, the vast majority, the, the, the lie would be apparent. You have all these healthy people that just have a laboratory. It's so ridiculous, David. It's worse than that. It's criminal. Evan Evan wants to know. Okay, so then, if the gay guys were were being targeted um, in the United States, what was happening in Africa then? <laughs> well, this is another part of this weird story. Uh, in 1985, the U.S. government put pressure on the World Health Organization to come up with a definition of AIDS in Africa. Because remember, part of the dogma is AIDS started in Africa. And the 
most uh, uh, worst place in the world for AIDS was Africa, and, and the worst in Africa was South Africa. All right, so they had to come up, they couldn't use the tests there because it's too expensive to do antibody tests to all the people in Sub-Saharan Africa, about half a billion people, you know, and too poor, not enough money to do it. And they didn't have the symptoms. They didn't have any of the AIDS-defining symptoms in the industrialized world. So they had to come up with a definition for AIDS in Africa. And this is what they did. They call it the Bangui definition. They met in a little town called Bangui in Central African Republic <laughs> in 1985. And I they got it. together. They got together <laughs> and they redefined the diseases of poverty and malnutrition and called it AIDS. Fever, <laughs> di uh, diarrhea, persistent cough, weight loss, and TB. Those are the diseases of poverty and malnutrition mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. All right. But they're, they're the principal uh, diseases that they latch on to in sub-Saharan Africa, and that's AIDS in Africa. In fact, 90% of American AIDS cases, based on the, the U.S. definition of AIDS, and 90% of African AIDS cases, based on the African definition of AIDS, if they had a plane ticket to the other continent, they'd be cured. But by definition, they would no longer have AIDS. And the same is true in, in uh, Canada. If you, uh, most of the people in AIDS in the United States, based on that, the definition of two lab tests and no other symptoms, if they cross the border into Canada, they no longer have AIDS by definition. Or if they go to Europe, Europe does not accept that definition either. What happened in the 90s then with the ANC? Tom and Becky became president and he yep. started thinking about this and wondering what is going on. Yeah, and rightly so. You read that article, uh, uh, did you, my article? Mm -hmm. So you know, but the public, you want the public yeah. the public to know this. Uh, Tabo Mbeki is one of the most intelligent leaders and and uh, that, that, that I'm aware of anyway, uh, world leaders. Honest man, I believe he's, I believe he's an honest man, try, really honest to good, trying to do some good for the people of South Africa and for the world. And... Uh, I was one of my little companies was in uh, 2000, I, 1999. I, I funded another little company, uh, Kepri uh, Pharmaceuticals, and I was uh, interviewing one of the central guys in my new company. When I got a phone, I got a call on my phone. It was the president, Tabo and Becky of South Africa, on the phone, and this was in April of 2000. I didn't even know he had my phone number. <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, what do I, I don't know what to do. I got this guy I'm interviewing and everything. And uh, so he, he, he told me what he was doing. He was uh, uh, going to have a conference. It's going to be in May. Uh, he's inviting lots of people, AIDS experts from around the world. And he's already contacted heads of state. Uh, he told me it was the German Chancellor, it was uh, the President of the United States, it was the Prime Minister of England, and, and, and others that he was inviting, you know, and, and to this thing. And uh, and he was asking me to participate. He also invited Peter Duisberg, uh, he, and people from all over the world. Two thirds of the of the panelists were mainstream people, like from the the CDC, the NIH, places like that, and Europeans and others. One third were critics, people like me and Duisburg, uh, and they call us denialists. They throw, they have to use these terms. You know, if you can't chop down their arguments, you have to chop chop their legs off, you know, their integrity or whatever. And uh, so we had this thing. I don't know how much you want me to go into that panel. Chat, yeah, chat. Uh, it's very it, interesting. 
Okay. It was the panel, I swear, I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, it was uh, Clinton. Bill Clinton was president at the time, and I, I witnessed his efforts. He succeeded in torpedoing uh, President Tabo Mbeki's AIDS advisory panel. Saw it with my own eyes. Now, this is interesting. The two Bushes and Bill Clinton, both either on the campaign, during the campaign, or after they got in office, advocated, proposed to reduce the astronomical AIDS budget because in, in, in the United States, the, the AIDS numbers were so tiny, so trivial, but the money just kept going up 30 billion extra, new 30 billion or something like that every year, you know, and just kept increasing. And they wanted to tame it, cut it back, you know. And of course, they shut up immediately from other pressure, and then they they all increased the budget. Nobody's ever reduced them reduce the budget. So that's three presidents that wanted to and, and didn't. Instead, they went the other direction. And then you have this uh, Tabo and Becky, you know, what, wanting to do something and challenge the dogma and everything. Well, the pressures that be torpedoed it. And it was the United States in this case. And uh, so here we were at, uh, it, it, it was uh, Pretoria. That's right. It was Pretoria, the first one, Johannesburg, the second one. And we all sat around the table. Before it ever got started, we had the, the mainstream people and the, the, the critics there. And these three black Americans, well-dressed, all about the same build and demeanor. And uh, they all looked like FBI agents, but they were supposedly physicians. I mean, they, they looked like military types. I'm very yeah. stern, you know, very uh, imposing, intimidating guys. And they just came in and sat down. There was no name tags. No, they never said a word the whole time they were there. And the, a lot of the African delegates were upset. They wanted to know who these people were. Why were they there? You know, and uh, so they almost killed it right then. They almost had a, a revolt by the South Africans there. And then finally, Tabo Mbeki sent uh, somebody from his office came there and said, Bill Clinton asks that these people participate, not participate, be there, all right, because they did not participate. And so the government said, sure, they can be there. But now these guys were basically the eyes and ears of Bill Clinton. You had the people from the NIH there, from the CDC, and the other places in, in France and, and other places there. Now you, so the, these guys, and, and they were intimidating for the mainstream people because they knew that whatever these guys did in that meeting, whatever, they had these three witnesses, they could go back and tell the authorities, you know, they're basically there to intimidate the mainstream people to make sure they, they I guarantee you, they were ordered or, 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 or instructed not to participate before they left, before they showed up. And they either agreed among themselves or, or, or something like that not to. And the president had these three guys there to ensure sort of a backup that there won't be anybody there, you know, that, that, that goes out and lets this thing succeed. So anyway, finally, we got started. After everybody, the, the government agreed to have these, these three Americans there. They did absolutely nothing. Uh, and then uh, uh, Peter Duisberg was going to be the first speaker and present a talk, present data. And the mainstream all jumped up and yelled and said, no, 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 no presentations. They won't participate if there's any presentation. Think about that. What? <laughs> That's right. Think about that. A conference where you're there to debate the issues, present information, evidence, and data. And the mainstream would not let Peter Duisberg talk. Was this so recorded, the, David? Sorry, was this recorded? All, every, every minute of this thing was recorded. In fact, uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation asked for permission to cover it live, and the government gave them permission. 
The mainstream people said they would not participate if that happened. So they it, they didn't air it live, but they recorded every minute of it. And and the, the, and the do those tapes do those tapes still exist? I don't know. I doubt it now. But I remember the the government said that they were going to make all all of that available, not only the, the video available, but transcripts of, of the entire panel uh, at, goings on. Of course, that never happened. All right. And I don't think it ever will. And, and I, my guess is, if I was a South African, I would demand the release of those, of those transcripts and those videos because they're so crucial to their country, you know. And uh, Mbeki promised it. His government promised it. Of course, it didn't happen. He, he's only one guy. You know, people have to carry out his instructions. He, and if they don't, what can he do, you know, if they do it in mass? And, you know, so anyway... Uh, that that's what happened. So the, all we did that first the first meeting in, in Pretoria was go around the table. People spoke about twenty minutes each. Didn't present any data or anything. Then we had like a month long uh, uh, secure internet discussion among all the panelists to come up with an agenda for the second meeting in May, late May. All right, and. Uh, and that didn't happen. The only people that participated were the dissidents, the the uh, the critics like myself and Peter and uh, you know one third of the panel. The mainstream people did not participate. They totally boycotted it. All right. So and the government uh, was really really upset about that, of course. And they also found out that these that the mainstream people had uh, engaged in an email campaign, a global email campaign. Uh, to come up with some sort of strategy to just torpedo Mbeki's whole policy, things he's doing. And they call it the Durban Declaration, which many a uh, number of the mainstream panelists were signatories to, and they had all these other people around the world. And it, basically, it didn't argue anything. It was like reading, reading the Bible, you know, reading the Ten Commandments uh, with no discussion. And that, that was their response. And of course, the government was really upset with that. So the government then uh, uh, gave in to our uh, uh, demands for presentations, you know, and the government agreed. They were so upset with the mainstream people that they absolutely insisted on presentations the, uh, during the, the second panel. So we had them. Our side took it very seriously. The other side did, did their best to comply with it on, on the surface, but not in spirit, and they, they did nothing. For example, Peter Duisberg, he, the world authority on retroviruses, he gave his talk, the criticism, HIV and everything, and, and then guess what they brought up? They brought up this this young woman, I don't know if she was a postdoctoral fellow or what, you know, that knew very little about this, had no history in it or anything like that. And she goes up to try to make the case for the HIV hypothesis against the world's leading critic and, and biggest authority on retroviruses. I mean, that, that was basically uh, a humiliation. That was just a very a big slight to Peter, and he took it as, as such, and it, it, really, it, it, it really hurt him to be, to be, treated, be treated that way. And uh, now the, the proceedings are published, though. I can tell you that. You can get the proceedings. Uh, go online and you can get the proceedings and it's a long document it tells you who identifies who was there and everything and they summarized the fact that they couldn't get things to work out right they were used very politically safe language and to try not hurt anybody 
you know, and they've never, never uh, released those videos or, or the transcripts. So, I mean, ROVs were, were poisonous. Oh, yeah, oh, they're absolutely are poisonous. In fact, the very first one, the AZT, the one Freddie that Mercury. most everybody's, AZT, the very, very first one, it was invented in the 1960s as chemotherapy for cancer. The inventor did not even patent it because it was too toxic. And that's for <laughs> cancer patients. You only give chemotherapy to cancer patients for a very short period of time and you take it off of them or you kill them. If you're HIV positive, you get these drugs for life. And of course it killed, they estimate the AZT killed 300,000 gay men in the 80s and early 90s, 300,000 gay men. And that's what killed Freddie Mercury, AZT. I think you're right. I, 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 the name I remember, the details are a little foggy now. I got several decades. Well, Rock Hudson as well. I mean, all those celebrities, they didn't die of AIDS then. They died of other they stuff. Died of, either recreational drugs killed them or the consequences of mm. them, like pneumonia and stuff, or the therapies, in quotes, ACT, mm. DDI, 3TC, D4T, the protease inhibitors. So AIDS with lowercase letters exists. AIDS with uppercase yeah. letters as a name doesn't exist. No, that, because that one implies uh, a sexually transmitted viral caused disease. That does not exist, immune deficiency. That does not exist. AIDS, with the little letters, has been known for a long, long time. Acquired mm. immune deficiency syndrome. And lots of things can cause that. And, and malnutrition, poverty, malnutrition, ah, and bad yeah. water are the leading causes of AIDS with little letter, letters, which has been known for decades and decades, probably a century or more. And it still happens in the industrialized world, the United States mm. and Europe, where, where you have uh, slums, <laughs> you know, and, and really poor people. You, me, you have, with the small letters, you got AIDS there. Let me quote then Tom Becky. It's a disease of poverty. It is. In, in Africa. Oh, yes, of course, because it's not the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And in, in the United States, uh, the AIDS is primarily a drug disease, a recreational drug disease. Yeah, it's, it's, it's AZT. Mm. Uh, the nucleoside analogs, all of them that they use, that are they're licensed for, for uh, AIDS. All of them come with a black box warning label, which is the most severe warning that the FDA uh, gives out before they pull them off the market because they're so dangerous, all right? And they're called nucleoside analogs, and they're, which are designed to be DNA chain terminators. They are designed to kill dividing cells. They were designed to kill cancer cells, to kill uh, the, the cancer cells, supposedly rapidly dividing cells. Guess what? The cancer cells don't divide faster than your own cells. In fact, they're very sluggish. So chemotherapy, ACT, all those things, you know, do the, what they were designed to do. They stop cell division and, and they kill cells. And if you kill enough of them, you kill the patient before you kill the cancer. And that's what happens mm. a lot. And these same drugs that were designed to kill cancer cells, AZT, DDI, 3TC, D4T, and the other ones, uh, are, are killing your own cells. They're killing you. And, and this was known that they were killing you from the very beginning. Just like they, they know today, these people, Anthony Fauci and the others know that these injections for SARS-CoV-2 are killing people, injuring and killing people. They know this. Just as they knew back in the 80s that AZT was killing people. 
chemotherapy for cancer. If you were to give uh, AZT to a cancer patient the way they do for AIDS patient, the, the oncologist would lose his license and might even go to jail for, uh, for who knows, second-degree second murder or who knows what. But if you're treating AIDS case, oh my goodness, it's too late. We couldn't save them in time. They died of AIDS. It's hard to get your head around it, I know. You say, I, I, we're here an hour, I'm talking, I'm con, con, you know, condensing four decades. <laughs> HIV does not exist in people and it has never been found to exist in people. Uh, that, yes. Other than in a laboratory. Okay, so then tell me then about antibody tests. Do those not show the existence of HIV in people? No, they don't. In fact, uh, I was uh, uh, one of the uh, technical people in, in the Office of Medical and Scientific Justice uh, in the United States. Most states have felony law, felony laws for consciously exposing somebody to HIV. And uh, we won 55 cases. And most of the cases never even went to trial the ones that we won. And, and if they did go to the trial, they pretty much won for the same reason that the other ones didn't go to trial. The antibody tests, you, you, you know, they, like now with SARS-CoV-2 and all that, you know, how do you know you got COVID? Because they use a PCR test, you know, or an antibody test or something like that. Well, it's they're not looking at the virus. They're not looking for the virus at all. These are surrogate markers, sort of stand in or fill, fill in for the thing itself. Well, that got started with HIV. Since there was no HIV in a human being, how in the world do you label them AIDS? Since you have, that's part of the definition of AIDS now is the antibodies to HIV. It was your antibodies that reacted against some proteins in that little kit. They weren't looking for the, the viral proteins in you. They weren't looking for the virus in you. They were looking to see if you have antibodies that will react with some proteins that they say are HIV proteins. And if they react strong enough, they say you're positive. Yeah. And if they, if they act weakly, they say you're negative, all right? And uh, then if you, that, so that's one part of that definition. Now, and so and the inserts, the inserts that come with all of the HIV tests, the antibody tests, the Western blot tests, and the viral load tests, all say virtually the same thing. And we just pull it out there. It says, there's no recognized reference standard. Guess what their reference standard is? It's authentic virus. And they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that in the inserts. And they also, even stronger, they say this. This test cannot be used to diagnose AIDS or the presence of HIV. I've seen that. Or to confirm the presence of HIV. <laughs> That's what it says in those tests. It's at the bottom. So I've seen hold, it. So we hold that up, you know. And, and they and they say innocent. <laughs> Is that what they call non-specific? Yes, I mean you, you don't know what's specific. There's no way to get a specific unless you have the gold standard to compare it against. You see, it's and like. What, and uh, sorry, what what is that gold standard? The gold standard would be the virus itself. Remember, that's the thing that you care about. You care about this virus is in me, causing damage to my immune system. It's not saying my antibodies in me that they're measuring with the test are damaging me. You know, they don't say that. They don't say it's the nucleic acid that's in me causing the damage. They say, oh no, those are like license plates of a car that we're looking at. And we're saying that once we see this license plate, 
uh, we're saying that car it came from came from a BMW, a Volkswagen, or whatever. And not only that, it's functional. You put the key in it, turn the key, crank it up, and drive it off the lot. Mm. But if nobody's ever found that car that goes with that license plate in a person, and they've never been able to demonstrate that that thing that they say that, that's there even functions, even works. Basically, that's sort of a crude way of saying what the insert says. There is no way to determine the meaning of this test result. No, no, no way to value its significance. People were fearful of those tests. And if they came back HIV positive, it was almost like a death sentence. It, it was had, a death sentence. It had such and a it, massive psychological impact. Yeah, it was. Once, that was government policy. Like I said, it was set in, in April 23rd, 1984, that you cannot survive AIDS. It's not survivable. 100% lethal. And that's, that's still policy to this day. That's criminal. It is criminal. The amount of fear that you are inflicting on people. And then again, what does it even mean, David, to be positive or negative? It doesn't mean anything. Well, it depends on your mindset. If you're like me, you laugh at it, you know. But it, it, if you if you don't know better... It scares you to death. I mean, there are people can commit suicide. Mm. Uh, they lose all hope. Uh, they 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 might not, they might get fired from their job. You know, I mean, it it it, it it's it's voodoo. You're talking about decades of billions and billions and billions of dollars. You've got thousands of well-meaning doctors and scientists and researchers around the world. It can't possibly be some massive conspiracy. That they're all in on. So what's what's going on? No, I mean, it, look, no. Uh, but by the way, it's trillions of dollars. Sure. It's not billions. It, sure. The AIDS is at least a two trillion dollar. My word. Uh, gold rush for, for for those people, right? So it's it's trillions of dollars already. Well, it's the same thing. I tell you, it's the same thing that I witnessed uh, in 1985 when I had my red red pill experience. Those colleagues of mine that I worked with, you know, for those years, five years or so when I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, they were good, decent human beings. Some of them were actually very good scientists, you know, and uh, but they were most of, almost all of them were academe or they worked for a big drug company. And then so now they got the careers that they're, they're these people. It's like they've got this this uh, fork in the road uh, where. Uh, you go along merrily, like Peter Duesberg had, go along merrily, could have got his Nobel Prize and everything. And he had this fork in the road with his, with the HIV stuff that he knew was bogus, you know. And he spoke up about it. Even Peter told me, he said he wasn't even absolutely convinced that, H, that HIV was a complete fraud until after uh, he saw the response to his article. Mm. And then he realized... Is a total fraud because of how other people behave. All right. Now, so you've got all these people, like all, all of his other colleagues there, they want to keep their jobs, their careers. They've just decided to take this turn instead of that turn. And once they've taken that turn, you know, that most people just keep going down that road so they can keep getting the checks, come, the grants coming in, take care of the kids, their family, and everything. Or if you go down the other way, you're torpedoed mm. like President Tabo Mbeki or Peter Duesberg or me or anybody else. It's a choice you make. You, you, you pay the price. You pay the price 
and and you pay it one way or the other. See, I don't feel bad by the things that have happened to me, the opportunities that I've lost in life. I don't. No, I feel very good about it. I can still laugh and have a good time and enjoy people. But those other folks, the physicians, the physicians, God, they're the most fearful professionals I've ever encountered in my life because of all the stress and pressure that's put on them from childhood all the way through medical school, a residency, then they get their license, their license can be taken away from them on a whim, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. They've been prepared for decades throughout their whole career to just be dragged by the nose. And academics are the second most fearful profession, professionals that I know of. So what journalists are, are the third. Are you are you saying, David, that that then all of those generally good and well-meaning um, people are, are are kind of just working on 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 uh, flawed premises? They're cowards because a lot of them know it. A lot of them know it in their bones. They know. They, they, they know it. I mean, they just try to go about their life and do as well a job as they can, you know, but, but it just gets worse and worse over time. That's why I am so glad I went the route I did because I don't have this stuff nagging at me here later in life and I want to stick a knife in my, my heart because I went the wrong way and all that kind mm. of stuff, you know. It's you basically people, people sold out. You don't have that burden that, that they might have. I don't have that psychological, spiritual burden. What did... Um, Montaigne isolate. Then we have back. no idea. We have no idea because uh, it went to Robert Gallo's lab. You know, it was a sample. It was a it was a tissue sample from a human being in France that had the symptoms of AIDS. All right. So he, Robert Gallo got this sample, and then he did all these things with. It. He was trying to culture the virus, which Luc Montaigne could not do. Yeah, that was in sorry that happened at the Pasteur Institute hey, in Paris. It was, it was in France. I don't know which institute, probably Pasteur. And uh, I just know Luc Montagnier. It, it came out of his lab. All right. It was a sample from a patient. All right. And so Robert Gallo got it, and he couldn't grow it in normal T cells either. Uh, but he was able to, uh, like I said, culture it in cancer cells. And, and some, after he put in all these chemicals and things to try to produce something, he stressed the cells crazily, crazily, until they started producing these little vesicles. And these little vesicles will have nucleic acid in them. And then you can just culture, culture them. And you know, it's, it's a laboratory artifact. Right. You see, and, and that's what's going on. And that was created in the laboratory. Now the thing to do is, all right, now we found this in the laboratory. Now let's go see if we can find it in a human being. In fact, Robert Gallo was convicted of, of scientific misconduct uh, in the 80s, I believe it was. Mm. And the government couldn't have their, their lead HIV guy uh, be convicted of that. So they decided to redo the trial and the committee realized the government was never gonna let Robert Gallo be convicted. So they dropped the whole case. And just, they did kick him out of the NIH. I have a comment here. Um, so what is then the slowly and after 10 years drastic increasing viral load that they are getting as a blood test result after first identifying as HIV positive? And how come one then actually has reached a weak immune system and then going on ROVs? All those odd infections disappear again. Oh, okay. Uh, th this is a long story, too. A lot of your, It's a good question. A lot, a lot of stuff involved in there. Mm. Um, 
The viral load business, that's the PCR. They're not actually looking at virus, as we said before. They're looking at about 1%. Uh, HIV has three basic gene groups, 9,800 nucleotides. That means the nucleic acid things in there. And they look at about 1% of, of those nucleotides when they do the PCR. And then they amplify it up billions of fold or whatever. And then they quantify that. The so-called viral load, look at it. The word viral and load. Viral must mean the virus is there. Load must mean there's lots of it. People have, and I even published this, and other people have too, and put it out in lots of stuff. People have never, ever been able to correlate the viral load with virus. Because in order to do that, you have to have the virus. <laughs> you know, there have been real attempts to do that. And they'll show, you know, high viral loads with no virus, you know. And that's assuming that how they're assaying the virus is reliable. But if it was reliable, it makes no sense. Uh, there, uh, Piatek, I think that's one of the authors, one of the earlier ones, that showed there's all these viral loads that range all over the place, and you know half of them there's no detectable virus. Mm. Believe me, there's no detectable virus anyway. But even if you accept their own data, it's meaningless. You know all those zeros over there for for virus when you have all these different viral load numbers, and the viral load numbers are just a quanti quantified thing depending on the cycles of the PCR. We've learned a lot with the COVID that the cycles make all the difference. You know, it's like that the, the PCR is like a photocopy machine. It just keeps making copies and copies and copies, little segments of nucleic acid. And you can come up with anything you want, depending on uh, how many cycles you go through, how many doublings you want to go through and, and um, to see it. And the idea is the the fewer the cycles, the higher the viral load, because it means you don't have to make so many copies. There's a lot of it there. And that would be great if you could correlate that with the virus itself, which had never been done. And then they, okay, so that's one thing. They have this viral load thing. They have this hypothesis that it can actually measure how much of this virus is in you by using this PCR. And they say, if it's low, okay, you're good. We try to hope that the drugs will make it lower and stuff like that. And once it starts getting higher, then they say, oh, we might want to change the, your therapy. Change, drop mm -hmm. those drugs and try another one. You know, so that, that's how they used it back with the HIV stuff. All right. Now, th then when, when they started seeing it, I think uh, uh, David Ho was one of the first to do this back in the 90s. He started treating these people with high viral loads with uh, the uh, protease inhibitor cocktails of drugs, the, the, the HIV drug cocktails, heart. And he started noticing that the viral load went down on these sites. And another, not his study, but another study uh, looked at, yeah, they could see, yeah, the uh, HIV viral load in your blood all went down usually for a lot of people when you give them these toxic drugs. And they did the right thing. They did a control. They also looked at the circulating nucleic acid, your own nucleic acid in, in your blood, and it all went down too with the same drugs. In other words, the reduction in viral load had nothing to do with HIV. It was a toxic effect. It reduced the circulating levels of nucleic acids, strings of nucleic acids. So they got the low viral loads with these drugs, but they also lowered all the other circulating uh, nucleic acids your own in the blood, which was a clear sign of toxicity. Mm. Now, here's the other part of this story that started, I guess, in the early 2000s or late 90s, I forget which it was. 
They were showing so many diseases in these people that were taking the antiretroviral drugs. Remember, since 1997, most of the AIDS cases in the United States had no symptoms of disease. They just had two laboratory tests, uh, fewer than 200 mm. microliters of blood, T-cells, and HIV positive. So they had no symptoms. But then, so they started giving out these antiretroviral people, all, but they were still full-blown AIDS cases. So they gave them the antiretroviral drugs and they started getting sick. They come down, they would come down with AIDS-defining diseases and a whole host of other diseases besides AIDS-defining diseases. Now, instead of saying that those drugs are causing these diseases and these are toxic effects, they changed the name. You no longer had AIDS if you, they only showed up, the AIDS-defining diseases only showed up after you started taking the antiretroviral drugs. They call it immune reconstitution syndrome, <laughs> IRS. It's a much bigger problem than AIDS ever was. You can get this whole list, almost the entire list of AIDS-defining diseases after you start taking the, the HIV drugs, plus a whole a much larger list of non-AIDS-defining diseases. They have whole conferences devoted to this stuff. It's a huge, huge problem. And I, I even talked about that, I think, in some, in some of my talks about this stuff. And, it's called immune reconstitution disease. Originally, then they added another letter. They called it immune reconstitution, immune, uh, IRS, immune reconstitution syndrome, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome or something like that. IRIS or something like that. But anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's AIDS, that, but it's not called AIDS. IRS is AIDS, drug diseases, right? But it's, but it's not called AIDS, it's called IRS because they don't want, they don't want it out that the anti-HIV drugs is causing AIDS, are causing AIDS. That's exactly what they're doing. That's unbelievable. It's in, so, it's in the literature. So ARVs cause AIDS. Yes, it's in the literature. There's a crystal ball and you're looking into it and you see something. What is it that you see? Well, what I know is that we're in World War III. Now, how, how it's going to turn out will depend on what we all do, the people of the world do. What we people here in the United States, the Canadians, Australians, the South Africans, you know, your, your whole region, we have to resist. We have to say no. It's easy to do that. Easy to, I mean, easy to say that. It's easier for me because I've been doing it for 40 years, you know, almost 40 years, okay? So that I have a habit of it, and I'm not afraid of it. Uh, and, I, and I understand it fairly well. Uh, I'm hoping that a reasonable, number, a reasonable fraction of the world's population, even if it were only 10%, that's still 700 million people. Mm. If we resisted, I think we would stop this nonsense. And what I hope is, See, I'm not using a crystal ball because I don't know what's going to happen, but I would like to tell you what I hope happens. I hope that each locale thinks very seriously about, I'm a real believer in democracy. We've never had it on this planet except probably the ancient Greeks did. And I've been thinking for a long time about how to fix it. An elected office is lethal. Elected office selects only for those people who want the job and only those people get it because other people pay them to get it. All right. So uh, I would, I, I would, I have ways how I would propose to get around that, but I, you know, just just a way to do it. But we are going to have to resist. Mm. We are going to have to start loving each other and not attacking each other. 
I mean, I, and, and, and it's not easy. The people that wear these masks and these other people, I, I think of them as the Borg. If you ever watch the science fiction, the uh, next generation, the Borg are these sort of semi-human uh, robots. And they're just sort of hive beings. And they're just kind of walking around. And they're basically, they're harmless as individuals, you know. And I see them as lost souls. There's really not much you can do for those folks. So I don't get it. Don't engage them. I'm nice to them. I just basically ignore them, like you do the Borg. Uh, then there's the people that are fighting, like the mothers, and, and the the people that love liberty. I don't care. You know, I I have very simple criteria. All I care is decent human beings trying to do the right thing. I don't care their politics. Care about their politics at all. That's totally irrelevant. And those people I'm with, I will stand with any of those folks and do whatever I can to help it, fight alongside of, side of those for liberty. And then there's, I guess, a large majority in the middle, who knows what fraction is, 40%, I don't know, it's just a guess, are those that are just sort of sitting back and waiting to see what in the world happens. They could go this way or they could go that way. And, and uh, so, I think they still they still have some mental capacity left. The board yeah. have no mental capacity. I just feel sorry for them. So, <laughs> David, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we will we will stay in touch. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe. If you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit supportgerm.com.